This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Most authors don't get to call themselves a New York Times best-selling author, but Laura Lee Craker can. That title was earned in 2008 when she co-wrote with Lynn Spears, mother of pop star Britney Spears, the memoir, Through the Storm, a real story of fame and family in the tabloid world. But success like that doesn't happen overnight. Laura Lee has devoted her life to writing. In her early years, Laura Lee authored multiple parenting books, and since her book with Lynn Spears, she has published Many Secrets of the Amish, My Journey to Heaven with Marv Festeman, and most recently, Anna Pien Gables, My Daughter and Me. She's also a contributing author to digital publications and a regular blogger where you'll get a full taste of her ability to tell stories with compassion and hilarity, sometimes both. Welcome, Laura Lee. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. We are so excited to hear about your story. But before we get into that, Dave and I, and hopefully you too, will get to share an area of your life where you've made progress this week. So Dave, how about you go first, then I'll go second. I usually go first. I want you to go first this week. <laughs> oh my, so this is going to sound really bad. So I just finally got all the Christmas boxes filled with all the Christmas stuff in the house from Christmas. I just got them up into the attic this weekend. Where were they before? Were they So <laughs> Christmas in our house is like a three-month affair. So Jana puts everything out the 1st of November, and then... So we have everything out for November, December, and then all of January. And Jenna's Swedish, so she has, she just has all this creative stuff. So our house is just, it's, it's really wonderful to, to live in it during the time. It's miserable to put up and it's miserable to take down because it's so, it's, we actually have boxes and boxes and boxes of Christmas stuff. So Jenna had taken it all down and it was all boxed up in stacks and boxes in our kitchen so we could hardly move in our kitchen. So I finally had to march all that stuff up to the attic. I did it this weekend, so I feel good. That mm -hmm. is such an incredible feeling. I always take down my Christmas decorations like the week after Christmas. I'm always ready to take them down the day after Christmas because I live in a small house and I just have too much sparkle. But it feels so much bigger, right? When you get all the Christmas oh, decorations yeah. taken down. Oh. <laughs> well, congratulations, that is major progress. My progress is about physical fitness. So I've been moaning and complaining about there being so much snow and I'm not able to go running. And I've thought about joining a gym and just wondering about the safety of that with COVID going on. And so I finally decided to go look into our local activity centers, activity center. And they have a really great system where they only let in like five people at a time. And they also have a spinning room and I'm a big time spinner and I don't have a Peloton bike, which I'm very upset about. Everybody has these great Peloton bikes at home, but they have a spinning room that's not being used because no spinning classes are happening. So my friend and I, we get the spinning room all to ourselves. So it's safe, it's quiet, and it looks out onto this beautiful park. So I feel like I made progress by going forward and seeking information and actually going and working out. <laughs> that's huge. Great work. Yeah. 
What about you, Laura Lee? Do you have any areas in your life that you've made progress? Yeah, well, you guys both inspired me. And Dave, I have to say that my Christmas decorations just went to the basement on Friday. So that is encouraging that so that we're not the only ones. <laughs> well, it just was this big old ugly tub of Rubbermaid tub of and it just was sitting there and, and I, I can't really carry it myself. So and I don't want to be a nag, but anyway, let's just, let's just leave it there and say it happened finally. As far as progress, you know, something interesting in my writing life, me and a co-writer, Jenny Williams of Oklahoma City, we are, we put together a book proposal called Eat Like a Heroine, Nourish and Flourish with Bookish Stars from Anne of Green Gables to Zora Neale Hurston. And so we're really excited about this and we took quite a, quite a long time coming up with this proposal. Um, both of us have other jobs and other, um, you know, things that we're heavily invested in. So this was kind of put together part-time over about a year. And so we got a new agent in December and he's been shopping it and it hasn't been going very well. And so we're, we're kind of discouraged and we had a meeting last week. And we decided to go back to the drawing board, kind of reiterate this, this project. And so now we're going to position it as a gift book. And um, we're, gonna we're gonna pitch it as a two book deal, eat like a heroine and drink like a heroine. So my task in the last few days has been to um, write a mini proposal. And I'm talking like mini, mini, like one page. Um, but that's kind of easier said than done because the agent wants an outline. And as you guys know, the outline is can take the most time out of anything in a book proposal. So today I finally uh, broke through and found some references to the heroines. And by the heroines, I mean like female authors of literature or characters in literature um, who refer to coffee. So I, I had found a million references to coffee from male authors and by male characters in books. But today I found, I found some references to coffee in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith and in A Wrinkle in Time. What else? Oh, in Little Women, I found a reference to coffee. So I'm super excited. And, uh, you know, it's the small things sometimes that make you feel like you can keep going forward. So totally. So what kind of feedback was your agent getting and, and how did you absorb that? Yeah, well, it was, it was really hard for me because this book eat like a heroine, I would say is a dream book for me. And it's, it's everything I want to write about, which is, I love classic books. I have a whole Instagram thing going on where I interact with these people who are as nerdy about Anne of Green Gables as I am. And um, so for, for me and for Jenny too, this was our dream. I know there's books and then there's books that are your dream and your heart. So, so it was really difficult because we thought, you know, we had this great new agent. He was super enthusiastic. We thought, honestly, it would, it would sell very easily. So the kind of feedback he's been getting, some of it doesn't really make a lot of sense. One publisher said, this, this looks like a YA book. 
and we're like, what, what, what does that even mean? And, (laughs) and there's been some confusion, I guess, about what it is. I think when you're dealing with food, people immediately think cookbook. So, and we had a really hard time finding the, the bisect code, that code where it goes in the bookstore. Yes. Uh, We had a really hard time coming up with a bisect code. And what we had come up with was cooking and entertaining because there's two chapters on hospitality. Most of the feedback centered around that. Like some of it was really like, we love this. It's so, so joyful. It's so funny, but it's just not a fit for us. And, you know, that's fine. But uh, we got some confusing feedback too. And so basically what we decided was people don't know what this is or where to put it. So that was sort of hard to hear. Once that sort of soaked in, um, I kind of got excited all over again. It was like, you know what? There's no shame in going back to the drawing board. Edison reiterated the light bulb like what, a thousand times? I don't know how many times. We're being Edison right now and we are, we're going to reposition it as a gift book. And so we, you know, what we did was we pivoted as they say now, you know, we did (laughs) the pivot. Could you explain for our listeners what the bisect code is and, and, and because that would be very helpful to them because it really brings up in a really important point that if publishers don't know what category in which to put your book, it will get rejected just based on that. So talk a little bit of what is the bisect code and then maybe explain how that affected your book, you think. From here on out, whenever I go to a writer's conference or present, uh, you know, at any kind of, to any group of writers, I'm going to talk about this because it's so, so important. When you write a book proposal, you're not just writing to editor who will take it. An editor thinks much differently than a sales guy. And the sales guy are the ones you have to win over in the end. And a bisect code they will look directly at the bisect code. And that is when you flip a book over, you know, it's right by the ISBN number and the barcode. I have on writing well, and it is reference writing skills. So that would be the bisect code of that one. So basically it tells the bookseller where to put the book in the store, how to shelve it. And if they don't know where to shelve it, it will not sell. And I, I can tell you this from personal experience. When we came up with cooking and entertaining, I mean, it wasn't quite right, but we didn't know what else to do because there wasn't anything that really described our book because it, it's a mashup of foodie, love for you know all things foodie and love for all things literature. So there's kind of two things going on but it couldn't be in two places in the bookstore. Now we're going to position it as a gift book. And so it'll be crystal clear. This is a gift book. And at first I thought, well, there's too many words in it to be a gift book. Because up until recently, if you gave someone a gift book, it was like dominated by photographs, right? Or art. But now gift books are really they're not very gifty. I mean, they're just, they're just books that are, I don't know, it's hard to say, but they're more, they're giftable so that you might give it to someone in your book club or, or whatever, but yet it's not something maybe that you would put on your coffee table. So I think that definition has kind of changed a little bit. 
you know, we're really happy with this new uh, positioning of it. We really hope it'll be successful. So does a gift book have a thesis that runs through it? And if so, what is the thesis of your book? So I think, yeah, any gift book really, really does uh, have a thesis that runs through it. And the thesis that runs through Eat Like a Heroine is, you know, just hanging out with your favorite book heroines and letting them teach you about hospitality, about picnicking, about you know, how to eat local, about how to nourish your family, about how to, you know, how to throw a great Valentine celebration, for example. So the that's the thread or the thesis that runs through the book. Are you finding that the structure is different too? Are the chapters shorter or like, how are you structuring it differently than maybe some of your other previous nonfiction chapter books? Well, actually the chapters are just as long, which is why, you know, maybe... 5,000 words or whatever per chapter. That's why I didn't initially think gift book because I, and I didn't want it, I guess, ghettoized maybe is the word. I didn't want it in this gift section where there'd be all these books about, you know, I don't know, with watercolor paintings and whatever, but the gift book industry, I think has really changed. And now there's a lot of words in gift books. So no, it's it's actually the chapters are just as long as say, like Money Secrets of the Amish or any of the other prescriptive nonfiction books that I've written. Tell us, take us back to when you started writing and how did you know you wanted to be a writer and devote your life to this? Or did it come about gradually? Or tell us a little bit about your genesis of a, a, becoming an author. I always wanted to be a writer and I always liked writing even as a little girl and you know I kind of wanted to be Jane Polly that's who I wanted to be and she was kind of um, a hero of mine or Oprah and in fact when I moved to Chicago one of the first people I met on the street was Oprah so. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> I know I thought wow here I I've really made it I moved to Chicago and I met Oprah immediately so I wanted to be like a journalist that, you know, asked really hard questions, but was also really empathetic, et cetera. So that's kind of where I thought my life was going. But I grew to know that I really wanted to be a writer and it wasn't for me to be, you know, on TV and, you know, the pace of that didn't suit my, my basic personality, et cetera. My dad uh, ran a Christian bookstore. So I grew up at the, at the store. Um, from the time I was a little girl. And when I was a teenager, I would work there part time. So I really had a real grasp of, of books and, and what they could do for people. And, you know, since I wanted to be a writer, it was very natural to them think I wanted to, to write books. So my first job was at Baker Publishing. And for four years, I wrote the back covers of books and I wrote their catalogs. The title I had was copywriter, but another way to put it maybe would be marketing writer. But uh, what I didn't know then is that this uh, skill was actually solid gold. I tell anyone that I talk to who wants to write a book, look at books that you admire and read that back cover copy because, you know, those are some of the best descriptions of a book that you can possibly find. And especially at these big publishing companies, they really, they really know what they're doing. And back cover copy is both description and it's selling. 
So um, in learning to write back cover copy, I learned to sell a book through describing it and the benefits that, that you know, reading it could bring to the person who was thinking about purchasing it. So that is an incredible skill, one that I think is very underrated. Because I would imagine if you read a bunch of those and you see how the material is packaged and sold, then you yourself, if you're thinking of writing a book, can think about what is the promise of my book? What, why should somebody be reading my book? If you can have that in the back of your mind, like what will people say on the back cover of my book about my book? <laughs> it seems like an important idea to keep in the back of your mind. Absolutely. And I always tell people, find books that are um, similar to, to what you're writing about and, and look up the back covers and then cut and paste them and, and try to model your own pitch after that back cover copy because back cover copy is nothing but a pitch. It's a pitch for that book. So you can learn to pitch your book by learning from the masters who, who write back cover copy. I'd like to go back and talk about the book that you did that was a New York Times bestseller with, I believe it was Spears. Mom, I'm sure everybody wants to talk to you about that. What I'm interested in is having gone to your blog and seeing you have a very clear voice, which mm -hmm. is, I think, what makes you such a terrific writer. And yet you wrote, you co-wrote or essentially ghost wrote this book. You didn't ghost it because you had, mm -hmm. you know, your name was on the brand or was on the book, excuse me. But talk about writing when you're writing for someone else and the difference between that and your own voice and how do you how do you modulate that or adjust that or how do you even think about that as a writer? I fell into that book, it seemed like almost accidentally. And what happened was I, I was a an entertainment writer for 17 years for the Grand Rapids Press. And I did that on a freelance basis, but I did it all the time. So, so I was in there three times a week, let's say. My agent at the time, he called me up one day and he said, how would you like to write a book with Britney Spears' mom? And if I was clever and I wasn't so in shock, I would have said, hit me baby one more time, right? <laughs> Uh, because that was a crazy call and out of the blue. And so next thing you know, I'm on a plane to Nashville and I'm going to meet Lynn Spears, Brittany's mom at the office of her business manager, who my agent happened to know. And she wanted to write a Christian book. And he thought of me because uh, I was an entertainment writer. So it just... I mean, usually things don't come together that fast or, you know, it takes longer to match someone with a, with a co-writer. Instantly, I loved Lynn Spears and we just hit it off wonderfully. And, and then we clutched hands as we went through this crazy train of writing this book. So, and that crazy train, as you know, is still, uh, <laughs> it's come back around. It's back at the station so oh my gosh yep. I was I was just thinking about that I didn't want to ask you or follow up about about the topic because I just saw that it's back in the back sure. in the news again but no please uh, go ahead I mean, any any comments yeah. on the Britney Spears uh, lawsuit with her father 
people are starting to blame her parents again. They're starting to say, well, her parents should have should have stopped this from happening. Like when Britney was 17 and, and, you know, on the cover of Rolling Stones in a sort of sexual pose. But the truth is, and this is, this is my honest opinion. You cannot blame Lynn Spears for any of it. I was with her through that whole year of Britney being, you know, Britney going through so many things and, I'm telling you, that is a woman who is rock solid and her daughter was, in my mind, practically abducted by, by the entertainment industry, by, by the paparazzi, by this crazy culture that we have that, that builds people up only to tear them down. As you wrote that, were, mm-hmm. you, co- were you very cognizant, well, you had to be, of the voice of Lynn Spears? You know, one trick I used was she would say these Southern things, you know, she's from Louisiana and I'm from Winnipeg. So it was, <laughs> it was like Nanooka the North, right? <laughs> Writing a, a book about a Southern belle and it, in the voice of a Southern belle. So, you know, I pay attention to the way she talked about, you know, sweet tea. And I remember once she's, she said, <laughs> she said they would for fun the family would they would go to crawfish boils right but the way she said boils bowls crawfish bowls <laughs> like I thought she meant a bowl of crawfish so that's what I wrote in and you know and then when she looked at what I had written she said no no honey it's bowls it's boil and I like it was like a hooked on phonics you know episode gone wrong or something because we were saying the same word in different accents. And um, so it was so funny, but, but really just paying attention to the way she talked and she would say something like, Oh, this person slap nuts. And so I would write that down, slap nuts. That is nothing that I would say, but that's how she talks. So, so just in, in some of the other co-writes that I've done, just paying attention to the, to the wordings, what kind of writer are you? Are you somebody who writes daily to just keep, you know, churning out work? Do you do you block out time? And is it ever is there ever a day where you're like, I really don't want to write? And how do you fight that voice in your head? Well, these days I work part time, um, just Monday, Tuesday, and half of Wednesday at a at a magazine. And so for me, that's really great because I have lots of deadlines and I do very well on deadlines. And so to me, that gives me a lot of structure. So for my other days, so my Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, often I work on Saturdays because I love my work. So it's not usually a giant chore for me to work on a Saturday. Usually I'm like, yay, I get to work. So I'm very fortunate. I know, you know, that is harder to structure because if I don't have a deadline, um, it's a little harder, but let's say I'm writing a book. Uh, When I'm writing a book, I typically aim for a thousand words per day. And I, I take Sundays off completely and I, I reset, but let's say I'm on a really heavy deadline. I'll try to shoot for a thousand words per day. And some days it's like crawling over, you know, broken glass to get to a thousand words. 
but it doesn't have to be perfect. And there's such a feeling of accomplishment when I do get to a thousand words. Uh, sometimes it's very easy. Let's say I'm telling a story and it's just sort of flying out of me. But um, just to have that goal per day is just so important, I think. So I, I do usually write most days, but whether it be for the magazine or my own writing, usually I don't have to force myself to, but sometimes I do. And I don't really call it writer's block, but I call it just hard. Sometimes it's just hard and the words aren't coming. And I found a word count goal is really good for me to just try to hit and then I can pack it up. If I'm a first time author, let's say, and I'm going, I'm, I don't even know where I'm starting, but the first thing that comes to my mind is I got to get an agent. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend? Would you say, well, that's hard work. The first thing you need to do is X. The next thing is Y. What would you recommend? I always tell people, you know, if you can go to a writer's conference, do it. It is like gold to be in front face to face with someone, you know, I mean, I know now we have COVID, et cetera. So, but let's just pretend that, that we don't just sitting face to face with someone, an editor, an agent and, and pitching your book is far different than them maybe reading your email, maybe getting to your, your proposal on the slush pile. So that's, that's the number one thing I tell people to do, if at all possible. Number two, there's all kinds of webinars about finding an agent. Writer's Digest does excellent webinars. Pay the money, pay a hundred bucks or whatever it is. And those things are like gold because they will teach you what to do and the steps. Uh, And it is hard work to find an agent. And it is, it can be very time consuming. The third thing which anybody can do, and it's free, is go to those books that you admire. And don't just look at the back cover copy. Look at the acknowledgments and see who the agents are on these books. And that way you have um, something to talk about in your intro to an agent. You could say, I read the book that you represented, American Cheese. I really loved the author's humor and his take on cheese, whatever. I'm just, you know, (laughs) I'm making something up right now. And um, my book, you know, American Pimento, (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be a perfect fit for you. So, and I think a giant mistake people make is, a giant rookie mistake, I would say, is people don't target enough. They just throw everything against the wall and they hope something sticks. Well, in this case, that that backfires because that shows a lack of professionalism. And you've got to be as targeted as you can be and make a plan and, you know, look up a bunch of agents in these books, make a list Say, you know, the book name, the agent's name, the publisher's name, and and then look them all up and see what they are looking for. And then you could say, I saw on your website that you are looking for books about food, books about other books, and and then target, you know, send your, your proposal to those agents. Send your queries to those agents. Don't just send them to every nonfiction agent that is listed in the, you know, Writer's Digest Guide to Agents. 
Yeah, that's great advice. What can't an agent do for you? What do authors expect too much of from agents, would you say? And what can't they do for you? What can they do and what can't they do? So as I said, I found a new agent in December and that was that was a wonderful thing. I parted ways with my previous agent uh, four and a half years ago. So I had been going solo for a while and it was time for me to find a new agent. You know, people do expect maybe too much from their agents, but sometimes I think they expect too little. I've had two previous agents before this one. The first agent was very schmoozy and very like, oh, I don't know, generous with compliments, et cetera, but it didn't always ring true. And uh, my second agent was extremely hard to get a hold of. And so I think my third agent is actually the Goldilocks agent because he's encouraging and kind and fair and you can get a hold of him. But he's not at my beck and call, but when I need him, he's there. So I think you can expect that from an agent. You should, you should expect that from an agent. I do know a story of someone whom we know really well, both Melissa and me, who attended a writer's, it was really a boutique, I wouldn't call it even a conference. It was like a retreat with mm -hmm. like 10 writers and it was enormous chunk of money. I won't even yeah. tell you the chunk of money. But one of the reasons she attended it was not just because, you know, you got these nine course meals and luxurious walks in the mountains of California, but she went with the, because there was the promise of, well, I'll connect you with an agent. So she did get connected to an agent, but the agent was like one of your agents that was just, very schmoozy up front, but never did the hard work, either engaging her proposal or really pitching it. It was, it was just one of many that she felt that he had. And even though he had engaged her and said he would make the pitches, nothing ever came of it. So she was greatly disappointed with that. And, and I, I, it just goes to show that the Goldilocks agent I like that. I like that idea that, you know, it might take you an agent or two to get to one that really serves you in the way that you feel he or she needs to serve you. How long did it take you to get your first agent? Did you, did you have an agent for your very first book that you ever wrote or how, how did that work? Cause I know we live now in a era of self-publishing where many people self-publish without an agent. So how, how did it go for you? Things have changed um, over the 20 years that I've been publishing. I published my first five books without an agent. Hmm. And, and then I felt like I, I needed one. And actually, I was very grateful to have someone negotiate for me. That is not something that comes naturally to me. I mean, it comes more naturally now. But I've had to learn the hard way how to negotiate for what I want and need in a book deal. So, so it's always nice to have someone be your advocate, you know, someone who will pitch you because it, it feels weird to pitch yourself to be like, Oh, well, you know, I'm so great in these four ways, <laughs> yeah. you know, you really want someone else to do that because you feel like such a dork. That's not to say that you can't be confident in your abilities and your achievements. So, and that agent just kind of came to me, he actually came to me 
So that was really great. My second agent also was someone who I got to know through an, through another author. So that's actually a great way too. If you know someone who is represented by an agent, you could say, hey, you know, I've got this project. Do you think your agent would be a good fit? And that's a good way to put it. So it's not like, hey, can you ask your agent to represent me? (laughs) I get these notes, like these DMs all the time. My cousin wants to write a book. How does he get an agent? (laughs) Have they even started the book, right? That's half the battle. Yeah, there's so much to it. I have a writing student that is, is really a strong writer. And he, oh gosh, how old is he? 19? No, he's not even, I don't know. He's in his first year of college and he wants to get an agent by the time he turns 19. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, and I'm a very optimistic glasses half full person. And I'm like, wow, well, okay, here's some steps, but it's going to take a while. It's probably going to take a while. So, And go write something great. I love the moxie, Mm -hmm. but go write something great. (laughs) (laughs) yeah like these sort of arbitrary goals like I'm going to do this by the time I'm 30 or whatever you know it's like yeah it's something to shoot for but publishing is messy who would have ever thought you'd have a New York Times bestseller I mean that came to you through a series of events right to get connected with the right person so you just don't know so much of it is out of your control lots of it is in your control but lots of it isn't in your control Writing a book with Britney Spears' mom was nothing I would ever have thought of. My book, uh, Money Secrets of the Amish, an agent that I knew, uh, not an agent that was representing me, but an agent that I knew on a friendship level, he called me one day and he said, I know you're from a Mennonite background. Would you be interested in writing a book about Amish money habits? He said, publishers are asking for it. And I thought it sounded like the most boring topic of all time, right? I, I, you know, first of all, Mennonites are not Amish. We broke up in 1693. So <laughs> that was a long time ago. When I actually wrote the book, I, um, I realized that those ties are still there. And Sometimes I could understand uh, the Amish people when they spoke Pennsylvania Dutch, which is really Deutsch, German. It was it was fascinating. And there were other connections as well with the Amish that I never would have expected. And I had so much fun with that book. And let me just tell you a little bit more about how that book came to be. So at first I thought it was super boring, but I have a motto, go through the open door. And so the door kept opening. And as the door opened, I realized that this could actually be a really fun book. And I interviewed a banker from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, who was a banker to the Amish. And he was hysterical. He was very funny. And that was a surprise, right? Funny banker. And uh, so he was so funny that uh, I thought, you know, this could really be fun. And I started to get a vision for how fun it could be. And then my friend, Allison Hodgson, who um, has published a memoir with Zondervan called The Pug List. She said to me, Laura Lee, you're bad with money. 
I'm like, yes, I know, Allison. Thank you for pointing that out. And she said, no, that's your shtick. You're bad with money. The Amish are going to teach you. And boom, there it was. And there was no looking back after that. And I had a great time with that book. And it it sold more than any of my other solo books. So that, that was a great blessing in my life. Are you any better with money because of it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not great, but the Amish did teach me a lot. The one thing that strikes me about your career and your writing, which I think is such an should be an encouragement to other writers, is you don't just have one theme that you write about. You ha- you write what is interesting to you in the moment or the opportunity that comes in the moment. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I've been so fortunate to to really have um, most of the projects I've ever worked on. I've been interested in. And even Money Secrets of the Amish, which didn't start out that way, really ended that way. And it just helps to have a natural curiosity about a lot of different things, what matters to you and your experiences and your natural curiosity. All these things kind of crystallize in certain moments and, and you know, give you ideas for, for what you want to write about. I also see that you you dig into the topic and you learn as much as you can. And I think that that is something that we like to encourage our authors that we work with to do is don't just stay at the surface level, really put yourself totally into it and try to learn as much as you can. Interview people, write down quotes that maybe inspire you or link to what you're thinking. And so I see in you that you just follow a topic so fully, just hearing you talk about interviewing the banker from Pennsylvania, the funny, ba- the funny banker from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. That's a great encouragement, I think, also. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Laura Lee, for joining us. You've given us so much to think about. And our, it's so great to have somebody with such experience like you to give so many insider tips. So thank you again for being with us. Oh, thank you, Melissa and Dave. All right, so we're going to move to our words of the episode. Dave, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Why don't you go first? All right, so my word is lacrimose. And I remember learning this word long ago, but it actually came up in one of my son's books that he read when he was in um, elementary school, the Lemony Snicket series. And one of the places was called Lacrimose Lake. And Lemony Snicket, his books had the greatest vocabulary and I'd read them out loud to my son so that he would learn all these great words in the context of, you know, great literature. So I love his books and lacrimose is my word and it's suggestive of or tending to cause tears or mournful. So there's music that is lacrimose, maybe a bird's cry is lacrimose. And of course I'm a four and I have all the feelings. So this word is right up my alley. <laughs> you are a four on the Enneagram. I, I I can almost predict the words that you're going to select. I know they're all deeply feeling. <laughs> all right. That's so wonderful. That's a great word. And I'm going to just say this once again. I don't think I've ever, I, I I've heard the word. I've never used the word. Yeah. It's fun to try to use it. I Again, I like the way that it sounds. Um, it has a lyrical sound to it. So it's one that appeals to me on that level as well. So, okay, you're up, Dave. All right, so my word is swarthy and it means dark skinned. It usually refers to someone whose skin is weather beaten 
and darkened. And I like the word because I grew up with farmers and ranchers uh, in North and South Dakota. My, my father was a farmer early on and my grandfather his entire life. And one of the things that would stick out to me is by the end of the summer and into late into fall, farmers especially would always wear those caps. And, and so the top of their head is white, but their face is swarthy. It's dark skin because it's weather beaten because of the sun it refers to complexion. So skin that's weather beaten or darkened you know, by the sun or someone who has an olive complexion. Based on our ethnicity, we are not swarthy, and we're definitely not outside under the sun at this time of year. So no, I would be the antithesis swarthy. of swarthy. <laughs> what about you, Lorley? Do you have a word that you'd like to share as well? We didn't find out what Dave is on the Enneagram, and I would like to know that. I'm an eight. <laughs> People hate eights. But no, I'm no, eight. no, no, no. Eight is great. Okay, I'm a seven. So my uh, word would be hubbub. I just love hubbub, the word. I love anything that is a hubbub because I'm a seven and I'm I gravitate to the newest hubbub. So looking for a party to break out. I I really am, and um, I think a party broke out today on this podcast. So absolutely, (laughs) you made it so much fun, and oh my gosh, loved every minute of this and. You gave such a rich um, explanation of working with an agent. So thank you for that in specific. So helpful. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. So with that, I think that that's a wrap, Dave. Do you want to talk a little bit about our Road Trippers group? Every week on Tuesday at 3.30 p.m. Central, we host a Q&A. And so we create a Zoom call. And so if you join our Road Trippers group on Facebook, which is closed, and just jump on there and ask to join it. We will let you in and we post the Zoom link there and we'd love to have you join us. It's free. Go to Facebook, uh, search for Road Trippers. There's a couple different groups, but you'll see the Journey 66 Road Trippers and jump on our Zoom call. Absolutely. We'd love to have you. All right. So that is a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.